All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And like Andy said, we were working our way through the book of Philippians. We're trying to talk about uh, what is the great cause that we're meant to give our lives away to. And we've talked about how this is meant to be the, the, the heart of the Christian faith, the gospel. And tonight, uh, really what the author Paul is after is really answering the question of why. Like, why is it um, the gospel that he built his life upon. Why is it that for you, like, this is the great cause to which you are meant to give away uh, your life? And uh, the way that Paul is really going to tackle that why question is he's really going to use uh, pretty much throughout this entire passage uh, the image of a resume. Uh, and, they, you know, it wasn't the same way back then. They didn't have, like, monster.com uh, back in the first century. But it's kind of the same idea. You know, you think about it, you apply for a job, you turn in a resume. And um, before we kind of see how Paul does this, um, let's first, I think it's just really important for us first to kind of clarify what a resume is. That's what we're going to be talking about all night. That's what kind of the image Paul draws from. What is the essence of a resume? Well, the essence of a resume is it's an appeal. A, a resume is essentially an appeal. It is you, you know, when you apply for a job, putting on a piece of paper, uh, here's what I've done, here's what I can accomplish, and it's an appeal, like, okay, I'm going to put myself out there, and I'm hoping that you deem me as worthy. And it's a reason why. Because a resume is more than a piece of paper, it's essentially an appeal. It's why, for example, when you apply for a new job, it is far more emotional than you could have ever anticipated because, I mean, you're putting on that piece of paper who you are, right? You're not just handing a piece of paper, you're handing it who you are and your accomplishments and your gifts and your skill set. And you've kind of cleverly worded things for, you know, to, to kind of portray yourself in the best possible light. I'm not a janitor. I was a sanitation engineer. I don't just like hang out at the park and play ultimate Frisbee all day. I'm the founder of an urban nonprofit that promotes physical fitness at City Park through the plane of Frisbee. You know, you put all those things on on your resume, turn it in, and you put yourself entirely out there, and, and you're, you know, you are either going to be accepted or rejected as an individual. And so we do this. We do this with jobs. We do this um, really, I think, in every, when you kind of start to see it from that perspective, what you understand is we're really handing our resume out wherever it is we go, not just with our job. But I mean, let's say, for example, you went on a date this past week. When you went on that date, you came with a resume. You didn't come with a paper resume. At least I hope you didn't. Um, that's why you didn't get a call back if you handed out a resume, like, here's my credentials. But think about that. Like, when you came, you came making an appeal, didn't you? You came like, here's how attractive I can be. Here's how, you know, here's the cool clothes I can put on myself. Here's how thoughtful and caring I am, and I'm going to drop the fact that, you know, like, I have a dog, but I didn't, you know, get that dog from a breeder. I rescued the dog because I love dogs that need to be rescued. Like, what's happening in that moment? Like, when we're dating, when we're meeting people for the first time, and with our kids, and with, I mean, we're always kind of making this appeal of, here's who I am, know who I really am, know what I can offer, know what I can bring to the table, and hopefully you will accept me and deem me worthy. We do this kind of everywhere in our lives. Now, here's kind of the line of reasoning that will make tonight make sense, and here's why it matters. So if a resume is essentially an appeal for us to be accepted, and if we kind of do this in every area of our lives, here's what's crucial for us to understand tonight, is that we really do take this same approach when it comes to being accepted by God. 
Now, some of you were raised in environments where it really was kind of this simple. Maybe your parents or the environment you grew up in didn't come right out and say it, but kind of the underlying philosophy of the religious environment you grew up in was essentially, okay, there's a heaven and there's a hell, there's good people and there's bad people, and God kind of picks the teams like the way that, you know, teams were picked for for kickball back in middle school, and you got to be good enough to kind of make the team, right? I mean, here's kind of the list of rules. Here's what it means to be good enough, obedient enough devout enough, do these things, don't do these things, and you will hopefully make the team. Hopefully what you see is that's nothing more than bringing in a resume. Hopefully I'll get picked. Hopefully I'll be good enough to get the job. Even for those of you who weren't raised particularly in this environment, what you have to understand is your natural propensity is to think the exact same way as it pertains to how God kind of makes decisions. So even if we're just talking cold, hard statistics, if you're just a typical American in this room who isn't, you know, a big fan of institutional religion, considers yourself more spiritual than religious, aren't really sure what it is that you believe, not sure how important it is, cold, hard statistics tell us if you're a typical American, you have some sort of notion there might be a heaven and hell. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure there's a place that good people go, and I want there to be life after death. I think there's got to be a place that bad people go. I mean, I don't like the idea of, like, Hitler being in heaven, so there's got to be a hell. And uh, in terms of how God picks which one you know, where you go, uh, you have to be a good person, right? I mean, that's just what the typical American says. Uh, If there is a heaven and hell, you have to be a good person in order to get into heaven. We don't really have a good idea of, like, what does it mean to be a good person, but we do know I qualify because I know lots of people around me who are far worse than me. And here's the deal. All you have to understand is that is a resume, too. Even though you might not consider yourself religious and you might not hold to an institutional religion, the reality is, is all that is, is thinking to yourself, okay, To be accepted by God, I have to be good. Here's what it means to be good. You probably have some sort of definition in your mind. It's a little bit different from everybody, for everybody. And you bring it to God, and God says, okay, you're on the team. You make the team. You will be accepted. Now, here's what Paul is going to do. So a resume is an appeal. We make this appeal to God. What Paul is actually going to do tonight is he's actually going to affirm that line of reasoning. He's actually going to do that. He's going to say, you're right. Like, there is a God. There is a heaven and hell. There is uh, the option of being blessed and loved by him. There is the option of being rejected by him. And you really do have to make your best case. You really do have to make an appeal. You do have to come to him and kind of put, the, put, put on the table, here's my resume. Here's what I can do. Here's what I've done. Here's what I can offer. Uh, but what Paul is going to say is that in Christianity comes this beautiful catch. You get kind of this option. You get kind of presented with two options. Every human being is... You can, as you're thinking about hopefully being accepted by God, you can either submit what you can do or you can submit what Jesus has done for you. That's what Paul is going to say. All of this, this entire passage, he's going to juxtapose the two options that every human being, no matter what you believe, no matter what you think, no matter how you grew up, no matter where you live or will live, every human being has one of two options when it comes to being accepted, blessed, and loved by God. You can either bring your resume to the table or you can bring Jesus' resume. You can either submit what you can do or you can submit what Jesus has already done for you. And what Paul is going to push every single one of us in this room to do tonight is to deeply examine, okay, Like, what am I ultimately hoping for in order to be loved by God and accepted by God and go to heaven or however you want to put it? Who who ultimately does your hope rest in? What it is you can do or what it is that Jesus has done for you. Now, if we look back at the text, here's what Paul's going to do. He said this. He's going to juxtapose kind of these two options. He's going to start with option number one, which is what you can do. What is it you can do to to bring to the table? Now, uh, let me say this before we jump into the text, because this is like a really kind of intense, complicated passage here. Um, 
I don't, I don't want there to be kind of any confusion. What Paul's going to say is all of us have the propensity to come to God believing there's something that we can offer to him so that he will accept us and love us. Maybe that means being religious or devout or tolerant or intolerant. I mean, we all kind of in our minds think to ourselves, if I do this, I will be accepted by God. If I do enough kind of good stuff, he will love me, bless me, accept me. And what Paul's going to do is point to himself as an example, as a case study. He's going to say, I used to think that way too, but let me tell you something. It doesn't work. And he tells us exactly why. So let's kind of jump into this and see why he does this. So uh, verse one, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I write the same things to you. It's no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's reiterating a major theme in the letter that us giving ourselves to this cause of Jesus brings great joy in our lives. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All he's doing there is giving a warning. He's basically saying, look, as you try to answer this question, you need to understand there are people that are going to lead you astray. Here, he's referencing his Jewish kind of rivals who are presenting an opposite way to think about this and say, no, it's like about, you, about what you do and doing the right things. And then look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Look, here's, here's where he does it. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's just saying, we don't kind of bring what we can do for God, but if we did, let me tell you something. I have good reason to take that approach. And here's what he says. Um, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh in himself, I have more. It kind of comes off a little bit arrogant. What Paul's saying is like, look, if it's all about bringing a resume to God and what you can do, I'm the best. And he's not being arrogant. He's going to continue and say, I'm not being arrogant in this. You know, like uh, Peyton Manning, for example, saying he's the best quarterback in the world. That's not arrogance. That's the truth. Like Paul saying that he is the best kind of religious person in the world. That's not arrogance. It's the truth. And he goes on to say exactly why. He gives his resume. That's what verse 5 starts. He's like, okay, if I was turning a piece of paper, applying it to God to get into heaven, here's what I would put on there. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Now, none of that kind of jumps out to you like, man, that's like so impressive. You know, like we don't go around the church and it's like, man, you were circumcised on the eighth day. Like that is so impressive to me. And I bet God loved, that's like very weird because you and I, we don't, we don't exist in this kind of heavily Jewish influence culture. So let's maybe translate it to today and to Denver. Here's, if we were kind of putting it like today's words, we would say like, I had a PhD and I was tolerant and I loved music, but I didn't like the music where the guys sold out, you know, big bands like Nickelback, they stink. I like cool, hip, independent music, bands that nobody's ever heard of before. I eat healthy. I'm concerned about where my health, my food comes from as well. I make good money, but I'm also charitable. I'm heavily involved in community service, even though I'm wildly successful. What Paul is basically laying in this culture is the most impressive resume you could bring to the table, the type of resume everybody would look at and say, oh my gosh, if God was ever going to pick somebody for his dodgeball team, it is going to be you. Now, he gives his assessment then, okay? So you follow in with me up to this point. He's laid out his resume. He's said how impressive he is. And then look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And then here he is. He gives his assessment of his resume. He says, here's how I think about this now. He goes, this is how God thinks of it. He says, I count them, everything, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, do you see 
Uh, right up here. We have it up here because it's this important. See, okay, the loss of all things. So he's talking about everything he just laid out there. I count them as rubbish. Now, you see that word rubbish right there? Um, now, when I was in uh, doing uh, my, my graduate degree, um, I actually had the benefit and the privilege of being able to translate this entire book from Greek into English. And I think that word rubbish uh, is actually the most difficult word to translate in the entire book. It's the Greek word skubala. Scubala. And the reason it's difficult to translate is not because Greek scholars don't know what it means whatsoever. Um, it's because we can't really say what it means. Um, what commentators, you kind of read commentaries, everybody kind of says, um, this is the closest the Apostle Paul came to cussing. Like, it's not rubbish. Uh, it's more like what my dogs leave behind them as they're, you know, I take them for a walk. I mean, it's like doo-doo. It's like crap. It's like a giant pile of poo. And I know, like, for some of you, you're like, whoa, like, you can't say that in church. Well, I mean, take it up with the Apostle Paul. Like, he was at probably even used stronger language than this. I'm just kind of censoring myself here. Um, he's saying, okay, here's the deal. I look at everything that I've accomplished up to this point, and here's the way God looks at it. He looks at it as a, as a heaping pile of poo. Like, that's his assessment of it. Now, that's a little bit offensive. It's a little bit startling. Um, it's a little bit like, well, wait a second, like, in our culture, somebody who's as devoted and as, as loving and as, as passionate about his faith as you are, I mean, like, God has to love you. And he says, no, like, that's, that's not the way it works. Like, why is that? And, and here's where we, okay, let's think critically about this. Why is it that it says, I count them all as rubbish? Well, here's what I think the Apostle Paul understood, and I think we all can agree with this uh, as well, is that a good thing can quickly become meaningless, and not just meaningless, but a very bad, destructive thing when we falsely believe it has the power to gain us acceptance. That's a really long sentence, and that seems super complicated, but it's a really simple idea. Let me say it again, and then we'll try to unpack it. A good thing quickly becomes not only meaningless, but destructive in our lives when we falsely believe it has the power to save us or gain us acceptance into something. So let's just kind of give practical examples that we could all agree with. Let's say, for example, uh, let's take the example of you uh, making your bed. Now, you making your bed is a really good thing, right? Like everybody, yes, every, my wife is amazed. When I make the bed, she is blown away. Yes, so it's a, it's a good thing. And for some of us, there's been times in our lives where we, as we think about kind of bringing a resume to different places, we have put making our bed onto our resume, right? So when you were like five years old, you ran up to your mom and said, I made my bed. And she was like, that is awesome. I'm so proud of you. Here's a sucker. You can stay up 30 minutes later. I mean, in that moment, that good action gains you acceptance. But let's change the context. Let's say, for example, you decided to enlist in the Marine Corps. You're trying to go through boot camp, and your drill sergeant says to you, why should I let you into my squad, you despicable maggot? And you say, well, like, drill sergeant, I made my bed. Well, like, in that moment, what was once a good thing quickly becomes, I mean, not just meaningless, but really a bad thing because you falsely believed it could gain you acceptance. Well, let's take, for example, another, let's just do another example because this is kind of a complex idea. Let's say, um, let's talk about you uh, being stylish, okay? So you're a guy, and you're in Denver, and when it gets cold, you know, you know exactly, you know the uniform, right? Like beard, 
plaid shirt, skinny jeans, Clark shoes. Like in some ways, like that wardrobe, you being stylish, is a really good thing for you. It's a really good thing, and it can really gain you acceptance. So if you go into like a hipster bar on Larimer Street, like everybody's going to look at you be like, what's up? Come in, you're one of us. And, uh, you know, it's like no big deal. People aren't going to stare at you weird. But let's say, for example, you put that on your resume as you're applying to do a PhD at Harvard. And they say, oh, why should you, you know, be allowed to do a, be uh, accepted to do a PhD into to Harvard? And uh, you say, well, I have really good style. Like, thank you for your consideration. I look forward to starting my studies in the fall. And uh, you just assume that's going to, you know, get you in. Well, you know, I know it's a little bit ridiculous, but what you're seeing in that moment is a good thing quickly becomes not just meaningless, but destructive when we falsely believe it has the power to gain us acceptance. Now, take all of that because here is Paul's line of reasoning. That just how that with the Marine Corps, you, like you, you making your bed is not a bad thing, but when it pertains to you getting into the Marine Corps, it has as much value as a, ste- as a, a heaping pile of boo. Just how you being stylish is not a bad thing, but when it comes to you getting into Harvard to do your PhD, it has as much value as a heaping pile of poo. What Paul is saying is with God, you being a good person, you doing good things, you can define that however it is that you want to define that. Maybe that means you're religious, maybe that means you're irreligious, maybe that means you're tolerant, maybe it means you're just kind of socially active and aware, maybe it means you're very generous, maybe it means you have lots of money, maybe it means you're very successful, maybe it means you're educated, maybe it means you have influence, maybe it means you root for a particular sports team. Look, I know it's ridiculous, but all of us in our eyes kind of think to ourselves, because I do this, God will love and bless and accept me. And Paul is saying, whatever you put in that blank has as much value as a heaping pile of poo when it comes to you gaining God's acceptance. The reason this makes so much sense with the Marine Corps and Harvard and not as much sense with heaven and hell is because in our minds, we've kind of, as a culture, raised the bar for what it means to get in the Marine Corps and Harvard, and we've lowered the bar for what it means to dwell with God in eternity. What Paul is doing is raising the bar. He's reminding you that with God, the standard is not being good, The standard is not being better than most people. The standard is not being able to watch TV and point to people who are much crazier or angrier or stingier than you. The standard is perfection. It's actually higher than the Marine Corps. It's actually higher than Harvard. And it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. He gets asked, like, what what does it require of a man to be accepted by God? And you know what he says? He says this. Maybe we don't have it. Yes, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. The standard is perfection. And so anything less than perfection will not do. And so Paul, coming to the end of his life, is looking back on all his accomplishments and all he's done and all he's uh, performed. And he's not saying they're bad things. I mean, it's, it's good to do the things that Paul did. But... Those things are not just meaningless, but they're actually tremendously destructive when he falsely believed it had the power to gain him acceptance, that the resume would be sufficient to be accepted by God. Make sense? So he says that's option one. Option one is kind of putting your resume on the table, but here's the catch. If there's anything on that resume that God sees, and he's God, he's seen our entire lives, so there's anything less than perfection, which, I mean, we all say this. No matter what you believe, we're all like, nobody's perfect, right? We're all like, oh, yeah, yeah, nobody's perfect. 
Paul's saying is, with God, like, nobody being perfect is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And as you slide that imperfect resume, it's just not going to be good enough to be accepted. Now, fortunately, he doesn't stop there. He gives a second option, and he gives the option of, okay, but you can also submit the resume of Jesus in your place. And so here's what he does. Let's go back to verse 7. This is kind of what he's uh, kind of focusing in on. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So do you see that there? Uh, he says, I'm giving up something in order to receive something, in order to gain Christ. This is the language that is the heart of the Christian faith of a great, glorious exchange. It's kind of like the imagery of you applying to college. You know, it's, you know, it's, tomorrow is the application deadline. For those of you who applied to college, if you just remember that, you wait to the very last minute, you're ready to apply, and you're trying to get into school, and all of a sudden you're reading the requirements, and you're like, oh my gosh, like being the best at Super Nintendo on my block is not going to get me into school. Like, what is it that I'm going to do? And then all of a sudden this institution being like, well, here's the, here's the good news. The really good news is you see that valedictorian over there? You can actually receive his application in your place. That what Paul is kind of doing is he's refer- referencing this great exchange of the Christian faith that he is giving up his sin in order to receive Jesus. That at the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ is dying for sin. That's why he's dying. He's dying for our imperfections so that we can be forgiven. And he's not just doing that, but he's exchanging that to give us his righteousness so that we can be loved and accepted and dwell with God. That's what's happening. The great exchange of the gospel happening at the cross. Jesus takes on my sin. He gives me his righteousness so that I can be forgiven and accepted and loved by God. This is the heart of the Christian faith. It's what Christians have celebrated since the church began. In fact, in the 16th century, Martin Luther wrote about this, and this is just one of those beautiful sentences I'm just going to read. He wrote, that is the mystery which is the rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that we might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. And that's what Paul's saying. It's just like this incredible what seems to be too good to be true offer exists with God. As we think about, okay, am I going to be loved by him, accepted by him, known by him, get a good, be, be in heaven with him? You kind of got these two options. You can submit what you can do. Uh, but here's the deal. If it's short of perfection, it's going to fall short. You're not going to make it. It's not going to work. Or you can receive what Jesus has already done for you. The riches of Christ can be lavished upon your life, and you can be accepted and loved and, and blessed by God. Now, it's like he almost is like making this case. I mean, he's really making an appeal here. He's really making an appeal for, like, for we who are in this room reading this to be like, why in the world would I not follow Jesus? Why in the world would I not accept Jesus? Like, that's, that's kind of like where you're supposed to be at this point. But Paul's like, okay, I so want you to make a decision to follow Jesus. Um, I'm going to go even further than this. So he even goes to say, look, this is not some sort of kind of like, you know, like the, the, where, the, where the college application illustration breaks down is that's like not super appealing or enticing. It's just like kind of an intellectual exchange. But he's saying, no, like the truth of the gospel that makes this uh, 
beautiful is that it trickles down into every area of our lives. And he actually goes on to say, look, if you take God up on this deal, it practically will transform every area of your life. He even goes on to say it transforms your past, your present, and your future. And so I want you to see this, how he, he just takes his appeal even a step further. So he starts with his past and our past in general. He, he starts with, he says this, in my past, I've been justified. So I receive what Jesus has done for me. And in my past, I am now justified. He writes in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The word justification, it just means acquittal, forgiveness, you being your sin of your past being forgiven. It's, it's the image of a courtroom, and you are in the courtroom before God. He is the judge. He sees our lives. He slams down the gavel. Guilty, he pronounces the sentence of separation uh, from him. And Jesus Christ comes in our place to take on the penalty that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. We're justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. What he's saying is, unlike every other area you apply in your life, your past is not going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Some of you, some of us, let me say that, have made tremendous mistakes, tremendous failures in our past that haunt us. Sometimes it feels like seemingly forever. So some of you, you've had DUIs, and you know like that affects you for a really long time. They're not just like, Well, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. It's like, no, this is on your record, and this is going to affect if you get a job or a car and your car insurance. It's going to affect every single area of your life. And you've experienced that. You've experienced that uh, with mistakes and relationships. And, I mean, we've all experienced this. But in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is free. Well, really, it's free to you. It comes to a cost of Jesus. He pays the price, and we reap the rewards. What it means, if you've lived a really messed up life, this is really good news for you. It's really good news because it means you, when you receive this resume, you can be forgiven and really seek victory and and overcome whatever it is that you've done or has been done for you. But here's the catch. I have to say this before we move on to Paul's, Paul kind of moving into the present. Here's the other thing. You see where Paul says this? He says in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, not having a righteousness of my own, What he's making here is kind of a subtle declaration that for us in this room, here's the deal. You want to know the the one thing that will keep you away from the grace of God? You want to know the one thing, the one thing more than anything else that will separate you from God and have you not be accepted by him? The one thing, you ready for this? It's not your sin, it's your self-righteousness. It's not that you're a bad person, like What he's saying here, I mean, especially as he's confessing the fact that he was a murderer in his past, is God specializes in redeeming and saving and using bad people. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, I mean, he's surrounded by prostitutes and tax collectors and the absolute worst of the worst. But you know who rejected Jesus? The self-righteous. Those who could not say that my hope is resting on a righteousness of my own. Those who were so educated, those who were so influential, those who were so obedient, those who were so devoted, those who were so wealthy. But they look at Jesus and they really don't see a huge need for a savior because they have plenty of righteousness inside of themselves. And so I just, I don't know. I feel like I just had to say that, okay? Um, Two, not just in my past have I been justified. Two, in my present I'm being sanctified. In my present I'm being sanctified. So look at verse 10 that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. And here's the key word, uh, key phrase here, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. That's really all the word sanctification means. It means becoming like Jesus. It means being cleaned up. That when you were justified, God declares you to be righteous, forgiven. And when you're sanctified, you are becoming in practice what God has declared to be true. Okay? God has justified your past and declared you saint, uh, forgiven, loved, blessed, blameless, but that's not the way we practically live. So in our everyday life, what God does is through the power of his Holy Spirit, we become in practice what God has declared to be true. Paul in particular says, this is the way I interpret my sufferings, that as I'm going through the hardships of life, they are no longer purposeless. They are not uh, the, just the, the hand that I was dealt by the universe. It is not just kind of the way that things are or I'm being punished by this cold, distant, cosmic deity. He says, as I suffer, which he is suffering, he's writing this from prison, I am becoming more like Jesus in the process. I'm receiving the reward that I ultimately desire. Even this past week, I saw this so clearly. I was talking to one of our leaders, as many of you know, last week, I talked about uh, leaders in the church and really just honoring and treating leaders well. And I had a bunch of really good follow-up questions of leaders kind of you know, talking to me and saying, you know, they appreciated that. And I was talking to one of our leaders, and uh, she was just talking about, like, as a leader, um, just, I, I think, I, I don't know if this is too strong of a word, like the affliction of abandonment that comes when you lead something. So, like, you lead something, you give yourself to it. I mean, it's not just like a it, it's like people, right? So there's, like, people that you invest in and you, you care for and you have in your home and you, you, you care very deeply about. And then a lot of times those people will abandon you. And she was kind of sharing, like, that's really hard for me. Um, it's very difficult for me. It makes me not necessarily want to keep going. She said, but here's what, like, I'm seeing in my life. I'm seeing a greater knowledge and understanding and really empathy a relatability to Jesus experiencing this and even more that like when he goes to the cross to be crucified for us, like all his closest friends that he invested his entire life in, they're like, I don't even know him. You know, I haven't even met him. Yeah, crucify him. I don't really care. And she said, like, I'm beginning to understand, like, what that really entails and what that really requires. And what does it mean to really sacrificially lead and love people, even when they abandon me? I see that in Jesus, and I'm growing in Jesus and that. I'm like, okay, like, verse 10 is happening in your life. You are experiencing, as you share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And what it practically means then, as we go about doing life, there's nothing that's meaningless. God is using everything in your life, both good and bad, to shape you into the man or woman you were meant to be, but specifically to be like the person of Jesus Christ. Third and finally, he says, in my future, I will be glorified. So you see, he's walking through a timeline. In my past, I've been forgiven and justified. In the present, I'm being sanctified, being more like Jesus. And in my future, I'm being glorified. I will become who it is that God desires of me. I will finally be with God. I will finally experience the glory that I've been yearning for my entire life. He says, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And Paul, as he's kind of looking at this and examining this and thinking about this, you know, he knows that his death is imminent. He's in prison for his faith. And he knows, I mean, it's coming. He's coming. It's, it's coming for him. And he just knows, okay, there is a hope. This is not the end. And I have a tangible glimpse into what I get through Christ. When I see that when he died, he didn't just stay in the grave. He got back up. He kept on living and he started eating meals and hanging out with his friends 
It says the resurrection provides for me a tangible hope. You know, even this I saw really, really clearly this past week. Um, this one will be a little bit harder to go through, but um, I don't know. It was God's grace. Just I don't know. I think uh, one of the things I learned in grad school was some of my professors would say, uh, before, before you're ready to teach something, like God will typically make you believe it first. And um, so this past week, it, it was weird. Like I uh, got asked to do like a ton of assessments of uh, church planners that want to start new churches in the city like we have. It's basically just like a, a major interview process. So maybe that's where the inspiration came for the, all the resume talk uh, as well. And so, you know, talking to all these church planners and their wives, and did they want to do this? And are they gifted to do this? And can they do this? And um, we came to our last one. And before you, uh, before you assess somebody, you usually get a huge packet of information. And so I had a 67-page packet uh, on this family you know, I'm reading through it, so theo- theological questions, okay, check, 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 um, leadership questions, strategy questions, logistics questions, then I get to the family uh, questions, and just in there, it's like on page 45 or something like that, like it was kind of like no big deal whatsoever, like the guy who was applying to plant was just like, and my wife has stage four breast cancer, and we're not sure if she's going to live. Uh, they have four small kids in the house as well, it's like, wow, like this is going to be like an assessment I've never experienced before, and so we uh, show up to do the assessment on Wednesday. It's the last one. It's me and two other pastors. And, you know, we get together before and we're doing like a whole, um, you know, we kind of strategize like how are we going to take this on and what sort of questions. And, and usually it's like how do we like push people? But in this one, we're like, like how do we like kind of tiptoe around the obvious? Like, like she could die really, really soon. And like how do we like talk about that and bring that up but at the same time like not use the word death? Like is that offensive? Is that upsetting? What, you know, how exactly? And so we like try to get our game plan and we get like right into the middle of this assessment and this guy and his wife, they just start talking very openly like, yeah, like we know she's going to die. Like we know that I'm going to be a widower and I'm going to have four small kids at home alone. And they were just talking about death. I mean, like to be honest, um, it wasn't like it was no big deal. Like, there was a deep sadness and a pain, and, and just, I mean, like I said, this is not the story we would have chosen, but it's the story that we will accept. We were kind of, like, thrown off our guard a little bit. You know, it was like, I thought we weren't going to talk about, like, the giant elephant in the room. And uh, finally, the wife, who was just awesome, finally, like, stopped us just a few minutes into this. She said, here's the deal. Like, I know you guys don't want to talk about death, but here's the deal. Uh, all of us in this room are dying. Like, I just know it a lot better than the rest of you. And what I've experienced through this is the tangible gift to a greater degree than I would have ever imagined of the hope that the gospel brings into my life. Like, I hope you see that. Like, what, what Paul is saying here is the resurrection, the belief that Jesus Christ didn't just die, he's alive, and he's still in the business of changing lives today. But the doctrine of the resurrection is such practically good news that the mom who's about to die and she has four small kids can say, this isn't the end. There is a hope. Like, I am deeply saddened, but more than anything, I am deeply hopeful because I know that everybody is going to die and I know what awaits for me, that death is not the end, it's just a short step into the life that we have always clamored for. What Paul is saying is that the riches of Christ, when we accept his resume, they spill into our lives. And I was able to see that happen in multiple ways just in this past week with normal people. And so Paul, really more than anything else, he's pleading with us. He's pleading with us 
you've got to understand that, okay, for everybody, it boils down to these two options. Two resumes, God's going to accept us. He's either going to receive what you do or what Jesus has done for you. He says option one is really, really bad, and option two is really, really good. That's really the simple kind of heart of the Christian faith, and he points you and I to make a decision. Okay, like which one is it? When it comes to me, okay, I have this kind of, as an American, just this belief that there's something that has to be done in order for God to accept me and love me and bless me. Ultimately, where does my hope lie? And what I can do or what Jesus can do for you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Um, but one thing, let's not just kind of shift and be like we're doing something different. Everything that we do is linked to one another. And so uh, we're going to take communion. We're going to sing. But more than anything, I would love for you to kind of think about that question. Okay, so Paul is presenting to you a question. Um, if you believe that there is a God, and if you believe that God accepts some people and rejects other people, why ultimately is it that he will accept you? Where does your hope ultimately lie? And think about everything that it is that we talked about. And if it's not Jesus, I would deeply, even in this moment, start examining yourself and say, okay, this is a time where I'm finally being confronted to really believe seriously and concretely so my life can be practically transformed by this truth, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll talk about what to do next. God, we thank you so much uh, for this very rich theological text, unbelievably complex, unbelievably deep. And we thank you for a man like Paul uh, who challenges us to kind of wrestle with um, our minds while at the same time there's truth that practically changes our lives. The type of truth that changes um, the person who struggles to feel forgiven over past really bad mistakes, the person who is leading and feels abandoned by the people they're leading, uh, the person who is dying far sooner than she would have ever hoped to die, that there is this resume of Christ that's more than a resume. There are riches that spill into our lives and change our past, present, and future. And so, God, I pray for us. I pray for us um, to lay down our self-righteousness, to identify it in ourselves and our propensity to say, because I do this or because I'm like this, you will love and accept me. And to be able to say like Paul, that I bring to God a righteousness that is not of my own, but a righteousness outside of myself, the gift that comes through Jesus Christ and what he's done. God, let us respond accordingly to that. And we just ask these things in his name. Amen.